Well, good evening. Welcome to our uh, series on being politically incorrect. Glad you are here. If you're just coming in the doors, come on in. It's very casual. Find a seat. Let me uh, say a prayer for us, and we're going to jump right into our lesson. Lord, thank you for this evening. We're grateful that we can come together and speak our faith into this culture. Father, we can be a force for healing, a force for good, a force that takes your love and care into this world. I pray that you would bless our thoughts and our deliberations as we engage our minds and our hearts in your task. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if uh, you probably know the drill, that we take questions during class, answer as many as we can, can't answer them all, but thank you for sending them. Laura does a great job of trying to just consolidate them and ask the questions that do one of two things. I've noticed over the years that we have been in ministry together, she does one of two things with her question. One, she gets a sense of what are the things you really would like to hone in on, and two, she gets a sense of what I'm totally missing. And so she asked me one of those two questions, and she knows those things really well. So we're talking about politics. By the way, I'll just flip this up here. We, I do this every week just to give you a feel for some of the topics. We really want to talk about the biblical view of political issues so that we can speak God's truth into the world, in the public sphere, in the public square. These are the topics we'll be doing over the few weeks that we'll be looking into this. But before we jump into our topic, typically we kind of look in on the election, just see how things are going. This is my week for unflattering photos. I had this idea this week, I thought, I'm going to get a picture of Donald with his hair out of place. There are no pictures of Donald with his hair out of place, so that's the best I could do for you. New York Times, national polling average, Hillary 44, Donald 41. This race is getting even more interesting, if it wasn't interesting enough for you. Also, a lot has happened this week. If you, if you follow world events, and uh, you know there's a ton of things happening, but I did want to just go ahead and give you a disclaimer. This is Crossing's official position, is um, none of you are irredeemable and none of you are deplorable. I just wanted you to know that we feel like... <laughs> Just poking fun at our candidates, just poking fun at our candidates. You know, one of the things we talked about early on, one of the biblical principles is that we are called to engage our world, and that includes engaging the issues in the public square. There's pressure in our country, actually there's pressure in many parts of the world, but certainly in our country, indisputably pressure to keep religion in general, and I would argue Christianity in particular, more contained and out of the public square. And this week, it just hit me with what a hypocritical position that was when I see, uh, thank God, that at least the NFL and NCAA are weighing in on political issues of the world, but that religion shouldn't. And I thought, if we ever needed any encouragement to go engage, engage public issues, that's it. So we also, by the way, while we were focused on our election around the world, really interesting things happening. Uh, one, obviously, North Korea, successful nuclear test, 10 to 12 megaton device, that's significant. Uh, also, pursuing ballistic missiles. This is a concern in the world. We talked about immigration and refugees last time. We talked about that oppressive regimes tend to be aggressive regimes, and you certainly see that played out in North Korea. 
you have a, combina a dangerous combination there of a paranoid leader with a massive inferiority complex. And that's a, that's a concern in the world. It will be interesting to see how effective the nations of the world are in curbing some of those aggressive tendencies. At the same time, here's some news that may have passed you by uh, a little bit, I'm not sure, but on the Syrian front, up here in Aleppo, which you know is where the Syrian government and Russia are engaging ISIS in airstrikes, and we showed you that picture of that young boy that captured the hearts of the world, really, and put a face on this war. But in the last 30 days, 2,000 civilians have died in Aleppo in that fighting. And that's one that can kind of slip by us sometimes, but it's hard to underestimate the magnitude of the human cost of those kinds of situations. In the week before, we had just talked about the idea of oppression and terrorism in the world. And so you see these things playing out in real ways. And one of the other principles we had, one principle was the Bible calls us to speak into the public square, God's truth in the public square. The other was that a strong America can be a very powerful force for peace and justice in the world. And one of the things we want to speak is that our country be about the legitimate God-given purposes of government in the world. And I believe America is a hope for peace in the world. So that's what's been going on uh, around the world, a lot happening that really applies to what we're talking about. But in this lesson, we want to talk about the politics of poverty, talk about welfare, health care. I'd like to talk about the general idea of the distribution of wealth. In other words, how do we attack poverty? And let's talk just a few statistics just to give you a sense of the magnitude of the issue. First, in the world. In the world, poverty is classified between poverty, people who do not have enough, and extreme poverty. There are 805 million people in the world who do not have enough to eat to be healthy. So there's a real problem with hunger in the world. I know that's not going to surprise you, but the magnitude might. The World Bank classifies extreme poverty as people who live on less than $1.25 per day. Now, that's a little misleading because the $1.25 doesn't mean the same in every economy, but by any standards, that's extreme poverty. There are over a billion people in the world who fit that category of extreme poverty. In 2011, which is the last time I saw these statistics, if you bump that up to $2 a day, there are 2.2 billion people in the world that live on less than $2 a day. And to put this in perspective, in the United States, the average American lives on about $90 a day. So my point in telling you this is the magnitude and the extent of poverty in the world. Now, 80%, this is interesting too because it's, it's more focused than you would think, 80% of extreme poverty in the world, that more than a billion people, come from two places. One, about 400 million of those are in South Asia, and then the other 400 plus million are in sub-Saharan Africa. So the majority of extreme poverty is happening in fairly limited geographic regions around the world. That's what's happening in the world in terms of poverty, or at least a few statistics. In America, we have what is called relative poverty. And by that, I simply mean that we're not using the same statistics as you would for the whole world, but in America, we set a certain threshold of, that's relatively speaking, if you fall below that threshold, we consider that poverty. 
America, poverty, I put this chart on your handout just to give you a feel for this. It doesn't go back very far, but back to 91. Uh, currently, about 14% of Americans are considered in relative poverty. That translates to 43 million people. So that's a lot of people. In fact, that's the most number of Americans just the quantity in poverty in the 51 years of record keeping. Now, part of that's because the country's grown. So the percentage may stay the same, but there are more people in relative poverty. The trends are mixed, and this is interesting because we've been fighting poverty. Think of uh, Johnson's Great Society and the War on Poverty. I mean, this is something Americans care deeply about. It's one of the things I love about our country. We care about poverty. But we've been after this in a serious way for many, many decades. And some of the trends are going the right way and some of the trends aren't. Obviously, we have more Americans in poverty. That's not a good thing. There are two on the, on the ends of our demographic of our society. Make sure I get these statistics right. In 1980, 23% of senior citizens were, fell into poverty. In 2010, only 11. Now, that's not a good number, but that's at least a good direction. Going from 23% of seniors to 11%, from 1980 to 2011 in poverty. On the other end of the spectrum, in 1980, 10% of children lived in poverty. In 2010, that number was 27%. And so that number is going the, the wrong direction. And so the gross indicator and certain other indicators are, are not good for poverty in America. Healthcare. You notice that obviously in recent uh, years, we've had a big change in our health care policy. The Affordable Care Act was intended to dramatically change the health care landscape in America. As of January 2016, about 11 million people have applied for uh, coverage under the Affordable Care Act, either through healthcare.gov or through some of the state exchanges. But that leaves about 29 million uninsured Americans. So I don't mean this as a commentary on the Affordable Care Act. I simply want to put into perspective for you that despite a lot of our efforts, it does not always seem to be taking these numbers the direction that we wanted them to go. So first question was, what is the situation with poverty? There are could inundate you with statistics, but I hope that's enough for you to get a feel for poverty is a severe problem in the world, and poverty is a significant problem even in the United States. Well, I'd like to talk through just some points and kind of walk us through some simple statements and uh, maybe support that a little bit. First is this, before we talk about poverty and the biblical view, and the Bible has, by the way, a lot to say about poverty. Uh, probably almost 2,000 references in the Bible. There's a, a lot the Bible has to say about this subject. But the first is this. Poverty is more than an economic condition. I think some of the difficulty we have in attacking poverty is that we have a very narrow view of what it is. And so we're trying to fix a problem that's fairly elusive because it's actually a broader issue than we typically think. First of all, poverty is not just an economic situation. It also has to do with food. In other words, do you have enough food? Uh, has to do with health care. Do you have access to health care? Without, without those things, 
then you can be very poor. That has nothing to do with an economic measure. And on the flip side, how much money we're making isn't the only measure by the quality of people's lives. We talked about God's mandate for governments in the world is to do justice and peace and basically provide for human flourishing. These are things that are essential to human flourishing. They're part of the poverty equation, food, health care, safety. Obviously, it doesn't matter how much money you have, if you live in the middle of the Syrian conflict between ISIS and the powers of the world, you are impoverished in the sense that you don't even have the physical safety that you desire for yourself and for your family. Clean water. We're at the Water for Gala last night, an organization is dedicated to eradicating the problem of clean water in the world a noble gesture and one that they're quite serious about and doing quite well at. But the idea of, regardless of some of the other elements, if you don't have clean drinking water, and that's affecting the death rate of your children and the sickness of your population, that is an element of the idea of poverty. And so part of it is, is thinking a little more broadly about poverty, that it's more than an economic measure that there are all kinds of other elements that have to be addressed from food to safety to health care to clean water, education. People can be impoverished by ignorance. And in fact, we typically see a lack of education, at least to some extent, tied to a lot of other fairly negative social uh, ills, one of those being poverty. Setting those things aside for just a second, I want to go a little bit deeper, and I want to get into something that the Bible cares about. In addition to the economic effects, the quality of life issues that deal with poverty, there's also a certain poverty of the soul, if you will. And this is more real than you might think. I want to give you a, a couple of quotes here. The first is, and I recommend this book, When Helping Hurts. Uh, there's a lot of good thinking gone into how to actually help the poor. But it says this, research from around the world has found that shame, a poverty of being, a poverty of image, a poverty of what I'll call a poverty of the soul is a major part of brokenness that low-income people experience in their relationship with themselves. There's a book out that's uh, pretty popular right now. I may refer to it again later, but it's uh, been a New York Times bestseller. It's kind of been a bit of a sensation called Hillbilly Elegy. And it's a story of a young man who grew up uh, out of uh, basically white poverty, white working class uh, in Kentucky and Ohio. Went on to uh, be fairly successful attorney, but writes about the idea of white poverty because sometimes we tend to think of this in an ethnic terms, and it's really not. Poverty in all of its forms cuts across ethnicity. And it's very interesting when he talks about this exact Point. He says it's not just a matter of money. It's not just a matter of food and health care and other things. It's also something that brings a division culturally, socially amongst people, a feeling of less than. And then one of my favorite quotes from Mother Teresa is this, the deepest poverty is not being loved. She had a lot of great things to say about poverty and was a, quite a firsthand observer, not just an observer, a participant in poverty. And after all is said and done, I mean, I know we sit here comfortably thinking, no, that's not nearly as bad as not having health care or clean water or enough food. And she said, I know, I've seen all of that. But I'm telling you that the deepest poverty is not being loved. These things are saying something else about poverty that I think Christians are uniquely 
qualified to speak into the public square is because the Bible doesn't just send us out to be humanitarian. We will certainly do, and Christians are doing, a lot of good things to alleviate poverty, but Christians always take love with them. This is something that speaks to some of the deeper issues of poverty. So poverty is more than an economic condition. Well, what does the Bible have to say about this? In a nutshell, the Bible teaches us to care about poverty and to care for the poor. Both of those are biblical mandates. And I'm just giving you a couple of, of things here, but you, this is all over your Old and New Testaments. Deuteronomy, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within the land the Lord your God is giving you. And this is, by the way, another uniquely Christian idea to speak into the world is we don't think that what we have is innately ours. We think that everything we have, we are stewarding for God. That makes a huge difference in the way that we speak about the policies that would attack poverty. He says, the Lord your God gave it to you. Don't harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. You'll be open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. You see this played out in New Testament era. This is in Acts chapter 4. It's talking about the early church. This is talking about the followers of Christ. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet, and people were given what they needed. Now, some people read into this a kind of a socialist or a communist idea. The Bible doesn't endorse a particular method of the economy or the government. It certainly doesn't endorse uh, failed systems like communism or socialism, which have historically failed everywhere they've been tried. This and the, one of the big differences is in the New Testament, both old and new, it's not a coercive form of taking care of one another. It is a voluntary form of taking care of one another, which is another thing I think Christians bring to the public square that needs to be heard, is that coercive techniques to address poverty traditionally do not work well, that there are more qualitative issues here than simply the coercive redistribution of wealth. We've been doing that for a lot of decades, and we're not making a lot of ground on this problem. Christians speak more to a community and different way of understanding how we're going to relate to each other rather than some kind of authoritarian economic or political scheme. This is simply not the approach. So the idea of coercive versus voluntary. The third thing, and I don't want to be cynical here, but if you stop and think about this for a minute, if you have any idea how much money that we have put into the war on poverty, both globally and here. First of all, that's a credit to America. America is one of the most generous, well, without a doubt, generous nations in the world. But politics of poverty can become big business as well. And so we need to be careful as we speak into this that we don't find those forces that poverty begins to serve other purposes. Poverty is something that we see as an evil, as an ill of society that needs to be addressed. The fact that it serves some people's interests is, is really not a biblical point of view for us. So the Bible teaches us to care for and about the poor. Now, some of you are probably thinking, hey, Terry, I read the New Testament, and Jesus said, 
you will always have the poor with you. And that's true. It's a little out of context, but effectively, that's true. But rather than endorsing poverty, what Jesus was making was a prediction, which frankly has been true for 2,000 years and shows no sign of not being true into the future. And this is yet another Christian distinctive in the public sphere. Christians don't fight poverty because we think we can necessarily eliminate poverty. Even if we knew we could not eliminate poverty, we'd still do it. You understand what I'm saying? Is Christians are doing it for an innate reason. Because of what God has given us, we will go do these things. That's typically not the secular motivations. Those motivations are a little bit different. Now, we may agree on the process and what we think we should do, but I want you to, to really think about this. Christians bring a lot of distinctive and extremely useful viewpoints on poverty into the public sphere. So, Bible tells us to care for and to care about the poor. However, I'll make this observation. This is not, you don't have to be a rocket science to figure this. Many of the ways we help the poor are not effective. If you just look at the statistics, the numbers aren't all going the right way. Many things have been good. Don't misunderstand me. A lot of the things that we've done have helped people. But on a, on a broader scale, we're not winning the war on poverty, either in the world or in America. Now, I'm not trying to be uh, negative about it. I'm just trying to call it what it is. We do a lot of things that are not particularly effective. A couple of reasons for that. One is we sometimes have a one-size-fits-all approach, that all poverty is the same, and it's obviously not. The other is, is we sometimes ignore obstacles to delivering the aid. In other words, there's enough food in America to feed everyone. We don't have a food shortage, but there are sometimes other obstacles to getting that food to people. The same is certainly true in the world. And so sometimes we ignore some of the other factors. And then finally, we often just don't think of poverty as anything other than an economic issue. And it's a broader problem, has to be attacked in a broader way. Here's another book that I'd recommend to you. It's called Toxic Charity. And these are some of the lessons learned from decades of trying to help people. What Americans avoid facing is that while we are very generous in charitable giving, much of that money is either wasted or actually harms the people it's targeted to help. In other words, we have very good intentions, but not always good results. And the statistics would bear that out. Well, let's talk about the world. What do you mean, Robert? He says, well, in the last 50 years, the continent of Africa has received $1 trillion in benevolent aid. And remember, over 400 million of the extreme poor in the world live in that continent. Over a trillion dollars in benevolent aid. How effective has it been? Country by country, Africans are far worse off today than they were 50 years ago. The overall per capita income is lower than in the 70s. Over half of their 700 million population lives on less than a dollar a day, over 400 million actually. Life expectancy has stagnated and adult literacy has plummeted below pre-1980 levels. So I'm not trying to depress you. I think he makes his point pretty well, and the book continues to make this point, is that the ways we're addressing poverty are not always successful. This is one of the continents in which we poured a lot of aid without a lot of benefit to show for it. Then finally, in America, and this is a telling statement. This is not something that will probably shock you. I suspect many of you have the same feeling about this. For all our efforts in America to eliminate poverty, our entitlements, our programs, our charities, we have succeeded primarily in creating a permanent underclass, dismantling family structures and eroding the ethic of work. And our poor 
continue to become poorer. This is a trend that particularly concerns me, is, and the numbers don't tell the whole story. There is an education gap that is widening in our country. That's not a good thing. Education is one of those elements of poverty. There is a dropping out of the workforce. When you look at our unemployment numbers, they're actually kind of misleading because we really have a number of people who are permanently out of the workforce. That's not a good thing for any nation. It's not a good thing for us. It's not a good thing for those people. In fact, we're beginning to see the effects of what I call generational poverty. In other words, what he calls a permanent underclass whose social structure is actually being changed because of the idea of generational poverty. And that should break our heart to see that happen. Children who basically have very little hope of anything other than poverty. And that's just not what we as Americans believe. It's certainly not what we as Christians believe. The 2007, or 2011 census said that 49%, this is U.S. census data, 49% of Americans receive some kind of aid from the government. And a Forbes article uh, that I looked at back in 2014 said that that number has exceeded 50%. So what you're seeing is, is kind of what uh, Lupton is saying, is that our aid, as well-intentioned as it may be, is expanding in how many people are needing it. In other words, we're not getting people off, we're putting more people on. And he said the social implications of that are negative for our country, and I would agree with that. Uh, as Ben Franklin, they point this out in the articles, Ben Franklin was reported to have said, when the people find that they can vote themselves money, that will be the end of our republic. And you know, that's actually historically true. In uh, the Roman Empire, which is certainly not a republic in our sense of the word, but it's very interesting to watch that develop when you see a growing class of people who are dependent on the government, which is basically what Lupton's talking about here, dependent on aid and becoming a generational group that is dependent on aid. You see, two things happen. Number one, it pulls the whole society down, notwithstanding the plight of those folks, which is, is not something that we want, but it pulls the society down. And number two, it, it tends to cause some very negative political things to happen. Historically, governments have found that government aid is a way to control a population. That's not what we're founded on, and that's not a healthy development. But there can be political benefit to having people reliant upon government policies and government aid. That's not really the, the American motif. That is not the way we're done. And so these kinds of numbers are very alarming to us. Many of the ways that we help the poor are not effective. They're having toxic results, if you will. Well, the Bible gives us, this is kind of my last contention, is that poverty is more than economics. We need to understand the problem. The Bible gives us a mandate to care for and about the poor. Unfortunately, though, many of the ways we go about caring for and about the poor, when I say we, I mean the, all the world, not just uh, Christians, are not effective. But the Bible gives us a very effective model for helping and addressing the poor. First thing so we need to understand what the Bible says are the causes of poverty. Tim Keller says he summarizes the biblical point of view exactly right. The three causes of poverty, according to the Bible, are oppression, calamity, and personal moral failure. 
Now, the way that translates into our political environment is this. Typically, and I'm really painting with a broad brush, but typically, those that we would classify as liberals in our, um, in our political system tend to focus on what I call systems failures some form of oppression or another. People are being deprived of opportunity. They're deprived of jobs. They're deprived of education. They're deprived in some way. The system has failed the people. Conservatives, again, painting with a broad brush, tend to focus on personal moral failure, a work ethic, uh, the drive to get an education, to have a job, to master my own impulses that are destructive and to do constructive things for the family, to support strong families. There's a great correlation between strong families and poverty. So conservatives are often criticized for focusing only on personal moral failure. Both of those things, oppression, calamity, and personal moral failure are biblically contemplated causes, if you will, of poverty. But it's very difficult to fight poverty without knowing exactly what you're trying to fight. In other words, if you're trying to deal with oppression in the world, an oppressive government, then just pumping food and money and things into that country is not going to be effective because we're not fighting the oppression that is at the root cause of that poverty. If we treat everything like it was a calamity, you know, like a great uh, earthquake, and we just start pouring aid and money in for short-term relief, and that's not the situation. The situation happens to be personal moral failure. It happens to be more systemic than that. That will be completely ineffective. And that's part of the reason is that we need to understand the causes of poverty and treat them appropriately. The Bible gives us a really good model for dealing with this. It contemplates those reasons for poverty and it addresses them in a little bit different way. First, and this isn't mentioned here, but you all are probably familiar with this. In the Old and New Testament, there's the concept of a tithe. In other words, the biblical idea is that we don't keep everything that God gives to us. And traditionally, it's been a 10% tithe in the Old Testament. And every third year, that tithe would be stored up for relief to the poor, kind of a safety net. For us as Christians, we practice the same kind of thing. And a great part of our ministries that we take that money and those goods and use our time, our talents, is poured into healing the sick, helping the poor, in other words, dealing with poverty in its various forms. If you think about it, a huge amount of the ministries of churches are really directed at the kinds of things Jesus talks about in Matthew 25 when he says, look, on Judgment Day, here's what I'm going to applaud you for. You know, you healed the sick, you fed those who were hungry, you gave a cup of water to those who were thirsty, you visited those who were oppressed or imprisoned. Those are the kinds of things you see uh, churches doing. So the tithe is important, but there's also this really interesting idea called the gleaning principle. It's what people typically call it. Uh, just one passage out of the Old Testament, the law of Moses. When you reap the harvest of your land, don't reap your field right up to the edges. Don't gather all the gleanings of your harvest. Don't strip your vineyard bare. Don't gather up even the fallen grapes. Leave them for the poor and the sojourner, the alien. He says, I am the Lord your God. And here was the principle. The principle was you don't strip your fields bare. You leave some so that those who are poor can come and harvest the edges of your field. 
It was a way to give back. Now, you didn't go hand it to them. They came and they worked and they harvested it. The New Testament, you see this principle transformed a little bit. The same idea applies, but here's Paul talking to people in Greece, Thessalonica, and he said, listen, you guys know what our example was. When we were with you, we worked. We didn't eat your food without paying for it. We didn't want to put any burden on you so that anything got in the way of the gospel. He said, we did this not because we don't have a right to be helped, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If someone will not work, they will not eat. Now, I'm going to tell you that Christians have used this to bludgeon people over the head before, and that's not really what it's intended for, but there's a powerful principle here, this gleaning principle. And that principle is that there's an idea of relief. In other words, we give money to people who are in immediate need or medical supplies or food or whatever it may be, and we do that really well. We're really, I think, very good at that, and thank goodness that we are. Those are people that are in immediate need. But on a longer-term basis, to deal with the other causes of, of poverty, you see this gleaning principle, which is more what I call rehabilitation or development. And what you see more and more of, particularly in the world, are people using microloans. Uh, water 4, for example, doesn't just drill water wells. They train people to go drill water wells as a business, you know, kind of a low-cost thing that will get that around to as many villages as possible. You magnify it. Now you've not only addressed some of the water problem, but you've also created work, created an economy. You begin to close some of those other poverty gaps as well. That's the gleaning principle. Keller has a, a good analysis of this. So how would a government, for example, follow the gleaning principle? He says it would do so by always favoring programs that encourage work and self-sufficiency rather than dependency. You see, relief is absolutely essential in the midst of a catastrophe. You don't need to argue about anything other than there's a flood, there's an earthquake. We need immediate help for these folks. That's called relief, and it's absolutely essential in a catastrophe or what he calls a calamity. But on an ongoing basis, it actually creates dependency. It becomes toxic. In other words, continuing to pour money into Africa as though it's a relief situation, a catastrophe situation, actually causes dependency. The gleaning principle of scripture would say, let's go encourage work and self-sufficiency. This does a lot of good things. It develops and it attacks this whole poverty of the soul. It's more sustainable so that 50 years from now, you won't be reading some of these statistics about Africa that it's worse off 50 years later with a trillion dollars of investment. I want to change that cycle. And the Bible has something powerful to say, and it's called this gleaning principle. In other words, relief where it's needed, but rehabilitation and development for long-term health for people. This also, by the way, applies to businesses. This isn't just a government thing, but there's a powerful idea here for businesses as well. And there are some businesses that, uh, that really exemplify this. The gleaning principle as it applied to business is this. Don't harvest to the edge of your field. Don't think about your business as a way to pull every nickel out of the business. Think of it more as 
also being part of a community. In other words, pay a living wage. Provide some benefits. Care about your employee and your community and understand your business not just as a profit-making venture, but as something that's building your country and your society. That more holistic view of business is a way of putting this gleaning principle into practice. There's more to this than just getting any, everything that you can get out of your vineyard. Don't squeeze every cent out. The way businesses typically work, this is a pet peeve of mine, but I'll try to be short. The way businesses typically work is based on what's called enlightened self-interest. Now, there's some good in this. Here's what enlightened self-interest is like. Okay, we made a lot of money, we squeezed every cent out of the business, we're gonna take a piece of this and we're gonna give it to charity. Why? Well, partly out of sincere desire to do some good, to quote, give back, that's a good thing. But it's also enlightened self-interest. It's called doing well by doing good. Now that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's not a biblical thing. In other words, if I give, then you're gonna think I'm a really good company. And what does that mean? Well, you're gonna do more business with me. So guess what? Charity gets some money, I get more business. That's not the worst model in the world, but it's not the model that the Bible's talking about. This, that's called enlightened self-interest. In other words, throw some money into charity and my business gets better. It's a very short-sighted way of looking at poverty because what it tends to do is a relief mentality as opposed to a more holistic, look, this business is not just about making money, this business is about human flourishing in all of its forms. Does that make sense? You see some businesses, and you would know them if I named them, here in our city that operate like that, and they have huge impact for good in the world. And those businesses, I'm not telling you they're all Christian, but they're typically very biblically informed in their view of what their business is about. And then we need to be advocating to our government that our government would be very biblically informed to what it's about in the world. And I think the Bible gives us some great ideas, is attack the causes of poverty in different ways. Relief when it's a catastrophe, and rehabilitation and development for long-term, overall, more holistic solution to the problem of poverty. Well, that's a lot of stuff to talk about, so let me pause there and see if we have any questions and let's assimilate that just a little bit. And then I wanna talk about what are we gonna do with this, the applications. Question. I have a couple questions that kind of get to the heart of what a lot of people are asking. The first one is, what is the biggest impedance to charity not reaching the poor? What's the biggest impedance to keeping it from being effective? And the second question would be, there's a lot of money, billions of dollars, allocated for charity inside the United States, government programs, and going to other countries like Africa. Where is that going that it is not helping? Where does that money go since it's obviously not doing what we intend for it to? Yeah, good question. So what, what are some of the reasons for that? And we mentioned a couple of them, and in, in my view, as I've looked at it, and then you've seen some quotes, there are folks that have studied this a lot. I really think, and that's why I want to talk to you about the causes of poverty. I think part of it is we try to solve a problem that doesn't actually exist. And the simple example is a relief mentality when what we need is a development approach. And you do see more and more of that happening. You see lessons finally being learned typically in non-governmental uh, efforts 
uh, in the world is the idea of having a more development mentality for the long run and not just treating everything as throwing money at it. The second reason that that doesn't get there is trying to deal with oppression as if it were simply a poverty problem. There are more problems in the world than just poverty. North Korea, let me go back to my buddy Kim Jong-un. Well, he's not my buddy, but basically we talked about it. Think about that. You have unbelievable poverty in North Korea. And the problem is not that we cannot get, feed those folks if it were possible, but there's a level of oppression there that will not let that happen. You saw during uh, some of the sanctions on certain Middle Eastern countries like Iran that the money that did come in was funneled off by the government away from humanitarian concerns into military and other concerns. So another reason is not recognizing the cause of some poverty is oppression, and that issue has to be dealt with. So a lot of times it comes down to trying to treat the wrong problem, so to speak. Where is the money going if it's not actually helping people? It's going into all kinds of really interesting things that just don't have a lasting effect. Now, not all programs are this way. I'm painting with a broad brush, but the statistics would say far too many are because we're not having the success that we should be having with this. Part of it is, is getting aid that doesn't end up exactly what it was intended for. You've probably heard all the stories of roads being built where no road is necessary. You've probably read where we've given tractors, and when I say we, I'm talking about the world. I'm not picking on any particular group, but hey, let's go give modern tractors and modern agricultural equipment to people, and in 10 years, it's all broken down, no spare parts. It doesn't work anymore. So, I mean, those are anecdotal, but you understand what I'm saying is, trying to approach this in a way that, that gets either redirected or is just somewhat short-sighted. The, the intentions are good, but the effects are rather short-sighted. So those are some of the reasons, I think, that it hasn't been as effective. Can you give specific examples of how a government manipulates the people who rely on it for income? Well... How, historically, this is pretty easy to see. You get dependent populations in one way or another. There's two, historically speaking, uh, from my view, there are two basic ways that you control population. I'll call this totalitarian kind of a government. One is physical intimidation and fear. You know, I want you to think Third Reich. I want you to think North Korea. Right? Those are physical intimidation, the power of the state to punish. So that's one way for a totalitarian government to control its population. But another way to do that is simply to get the population dependent on something and consequently beholden to you. And again, that's where I think if we aren't careful, Aid programs can be used that way. Some international aid is used that way in the sense that we're going to pump money into a country and one of the side benefits of that is the threat of cutting it off enables one to coerce that country or its politics. This is not new. I mean, think, you just read a little bit of history and politics and there are people that use that in that way. Even in countries at times, there are ways to get people dependent on programs, and once they've lost the ability to do it another way, 
then there's, that's an effective way of controlling your population. Again, I mentioned the Roman Empire. That's a long time ago, but there are more recent examples. But those are two different ways that what I would call controlling kinds of governments control the populace. So that's, that's one example. I'm not saying that pointing at a particular program that's done, but it's not a healthy development in a society. It lends itself to the temptation to use that aid as a way to manipulate or control the population. Go back to the gleaning principle. Mm -hmm. Once you have programs that foster dependency, how do you transition to the gleaning principle without doing more harm than good? Yeah, good question. How do you transition to the gleaning principle? It's actually on the, on the ground level, I don't think that's where the problem really lies. The problem is in having the political will to do so because it's going to be a little bit unpopular in the short term for longer term health. I liken it to the idea of basically, uh, remember my little brother, by the way, this, this is the most extreme example I can think of. You know, all kids hate shots. My little brother was the king of I don't like shots. I remember one time we went in for a checkup. We were at a military hospital. We go in, and my sister and I are sitting patiently outside. Mom goes in with my brother. And before he goes in, he says to me, you know, my little brother, so I'm trying to take care of him. You think I'll get a shot? And I said, and he's, he's got this look in his eye. I thought, he's going to bolt. So I said, no, I don't think so. And so he goes in there, and the next thing I hear is this scream, a scuffle, you know, what's going on? Door flies open, he tears out down the hall. Mom comes out, embarrassed and angry in about equal measures, you know, and chasing this kid down the hall. Okay, think about that for a second. Okay, maybe that's not the best example. But my point is, that shot was gonna make him well, but in the short term, it was tough. I think the biggest issue is having the political will to do so and realizing that you don't break that habit overnight, that we begin to phase that in. I'm a big believer, by the way, I believe it's very biblical, that we need uh, what we typically like to call a safety net. We don't want people falling and breaking. We want to care for people. That's part of what we're called to do. But to really love people, take the folks that can work, and let's, let's give them the tools to work. That does really good things. So basically, for Christians, supporting those things that move us in that direction. I don't think it happens overnight, but I think as a policy alternative, it can make a huge difference. And the same thing for business. This isn't just a government issue. Let's advocate that in business, that we take that more holistic view of how to help our, our society. Um, several requests for the name and author of the Hillbilly book again. Wish you hadn't told me, asked me for the author. I know that. It's in my mind. I just can't well, remember. But just, it's J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance. Thank you. I knew that. <laughs> and, the, and the book's called Hillbilly Elegy. Hillbilly Elegy. E-L-E-G-Y. I, I got to look it up. So. Okay. That's no problem. Yeah, I just finished reading. It's a really good book. But basically, I, I mentioned that book mainly to tell you this. This is not an ethnic issue. This isn't, you know, uh, think of any ethnicity you want to put in. This is all ethnic. Poverty is a human problem not an ethnic problem. It happens for everyone, and we care about everyone. So, good question. Um, there are a lot of charitable organizations that are tied to nonprofit organizations. Can you talk a little bit about nonprofit organizations in the United States and whether or not they are actually charitable? 
Yes, that's a kind of a side question. I'll give you just a short answer on that. There are organizations that measure the effectiveness of charities. I, I don't know if this is what you're getting at. That is well worth looking into that information because when people advertise, they advertise a heart-tugging desire to meet a need, and that's a good thing. But some charities meet needs better than others. Just because it's a not-for-profit doesn't mean it's necessarily effective at getting most of your money applied to the problem and applied in an effective way. It's worth doing a little homework. Uh, and just the fact that it's a not-for-profit doesn't necessarily mean it's good. The fact that it's government doesn't necessarily mean, well, okay, it might, never mind. But you get my idea. But it's worth doing a little homework on that because charities are not all created equal in both the amount of money that flows and the effectiveness of it. But there are many good ones out there. Don't misunderstand me, but it's worth doing your homework. Well, I have a couple of questions on application, so I'll give them to you and then you can okay. uh, include That's them in your next section. But how does, what does application of the gleaning principle look like in terms of things like the Crossings Community Clinic? And how does the gleaning principle get applied to the large percentage of families, children in America who have single parent mothers and absent fathers? How do, we, how do we apply a gleaning principle and still maintain a safety net? Yeah, good point. Yeah, let me go ahead and answer that before I go into the application because I, I can tell that I've given you a dichotomy that I do not wish to give you. One is you either care for people who can't care for themselves by giving them food or giving them health care or giving them money or you go get a job and you care for them by helping them be self-supporting. I don't want you to understand this as a dichotomy. Depending on the need, the cause of the poverty, both of those, I'm calling this one relief, and that is I'm just going to give you healthcare. I'm going to give you. You don't need to pay. You don't need to work. You need it. I'm giving this to you. There's time for relief efforts, so to speak, to meet an immediate need. Longer term, where one can, development. So let me take this example. Uh, since you used the idea of a single mother household walks into Crossings Clinic. I'm not trying to brag on Crossings Clinic. This would be true. I, I would pray in every church in America. And that is, is we have an immediate need. My child is sick and needs some help. You're not going to say, well, you should get a job. <laughs> you should quit smoking and use that money for something else. I mean, that is not the answer you're going to get. What's that situation call for? You need help right now. We're going to help you right now. Now, you want to know what the second step of that might be? How can I help you get a job? Well, you know what? I need access to daycare, right? That's something our government could help with. That's something businesses might help with. That's something churches do help with. So you see, I'm not trying to set this up as an either-or. I'm just saying let relief be for its short-term needs, and then let's take the next step and let's do the things that help people be sustainable long-term. So uh, that's a great question. Well, let's talk about application for a minute. What are we going to do with this? So we've got all this biblical knowledge of how we should approach this. First is this. Give relief in calamity or catastrophe or immediate need, rehabilitation and development otherwise. And what I mean by this is we need to vote this way, we need to advocate this way, we need to advocate this principle into every public policy. This is all about Christians in the public square. Let's go advocate this idea. It's not heartless. 
it says there's a place for relief. There's a place for a safety net, but not for dependency. Let's go to the next step and let's actually give people dignity. Let's cure the poverty of the soul and let's let people have flourishing lives. You don't flourish in life constantly getting relief. So let's put those two together in an intelligent way and let's advocate for that. Another great principle is just avoid doing things for people in general that they can do for themselves. Now this isn't intended to be heartless. It means let's not enable that. Let's help people to help themselves. In other words, let's avoid doing things for people that they can do for themselves. Sometimes we rob people of human dignity by helping them with things that we ought to let them do on their own, or we ought to do what we can, and then they can celebrate what they have done. The Bible talks about work. And again, I'm not just talking about no idea of relief, but where we can, people should work, not because, hey, you should be working. The Bible says work is a part of what God created us to do. We all want meaningful work to do. And so this is something we ought not to steal from people, is don't uh, do things for people, generally speaking, that they can do for themselves. Let's help them do it for themselves. And so we need to advocate for these things. When we talk about policies and so forth, this is what we need to be focused on. Here's my voting uh, guide, just a couple of tips. We'll have some more every week. We'll talk about this. So the last time I talked to you about prioritize your issues because you're not going to find a platform of any of our parties, I'm going to suppose, maybe you can, but by and large, the statistics in this country in this election would show that far and away the majority of the people do not line up in some significant ways with any of the candidates in the race. Point is, prioritize our issues. We're going to vote. We're going to try to speak positively into this world. And when you vote, if you don't have a perfect candidate, it's time to prioritize issues. Second thing is support causes before candidates. Causes before candidates. And what I mean when I say causes is let's be about God's business in the world. For example, on poverty, let's go support a policy that will do sustainable, long-term, real good for the poor. And that is more important than a particular candidate. Let's not get caught up in the, the celebrity culture of candidacy and let's stay focused on God's business in the world. So these are the things that I think we need to advocate is take this biblical principle, take the compassion that we have, and not have misplaced compassion, but have a really well-considered idea. Now let's go vote that. Let's encourage businesses to operate in that way, and we can have a huge impact. Then the last thing I want to talk to you about is this, because I want to make this a little bit more personal, because statistic poverty, one thing I've, I've observed, and a lot of other authors have observed this, and I agree with them, is the more statistics you have, the less we actually feel and care about poverty. I mean, we care here because we've got all these statistics. This needs to become personal. I like this statement. This hit me a long time ago. In fact, I'll tell you, I was on an airplane going to see clients on the East Coast. The date was 93 or 94. And I, I had read this quote recently and said, Mother Teresa said this, there are many people who can do big things. And that's what we've been talking about. We've been talking about billions of people, you know, 43 million here, and it's easy for us to think, I don't know really what I can do. Terry says, let's go advocate for public policies. That's a good thing, but it's too big a problem for me. And we just sort of shut, shut off our compassion. I love this when she said, there are many people who can do big things, but there are very few people who will do the small things. Isn't that a profound thing to say? 
There are very few people who will do the small things. And that's the essence of attacking poverty. While I was on this plane, and I know this, and I saw this picture, I don't want this to shock you, this is just a true story. This really put a face on poverty for me. This photo was taken in 1993 in the Sudan um, by a photojournalist. It's a little Sudanese girl, and I saw this in a magazine while I'm on that plane. And it's, you're not allowed to cry when you're a businessman, so I didn't cry. But I kept this picture. This is a vulture waiting for this child to die. And so this guy took this picture, and he moved on. And I'm just kind of a, I mean, doing what photojournalists are called to do is he moved on, and he had taken so many pictures to document the humanitarian crisis of the wars that were going on there. But then I saw this picture, and it somehow it personalized this. And that's what I want to say about poverty is all the things we talked about are important, but you need to put a face on poverty. It's not going to get solved until it becomes personal in some way. And for me, I know this sounds not very personal because I don't know what happened to that child. No one does. I don't think it was good, and I don't know. And in fact, that photojournalist the next year won a Pulitzer Prize for that and probably well-deserved and then killed himself a couple of months later uh, just from the accumulated weight, according to his note, of just... This world seems to lack joy, just the despair in the world. But this needs to become personal to us. We need to realize we can make a difference by doing little things. And so here's your assignment. We don't usually have an assignment. You have an assignment this week. And that's this. Pick one small thing you can do and start. Now, you can vote. You can advocate. Some of you are very persuasive. You're bloggers. You're in media. You're influential, you speak in your company, you influence things. Go by all means, influence this world for God's principles to go attack this problem of poverty in all of its forms. But everyone can do one small thing. And I don't, I mean, there's so many ideas, whether it's whiz kids helping to educate children and reading to somebody once a week, whether it's team, education, employment ministry, it's living faith, living hope, helping prisoners, volunteering in some way to help prisoners back into society. There's so many good things happening, little ways. Don't let the little things keep you from making a difference. So personalize poverty. We won't solve it until it becomes, it touches us. And then secondly, until we quit waiting for government and other people to do big things. They haven't done well at that. And we start doing the small things. Okay? Pick one small thing and go do that. Start doing that in your family. And watch what God does with it. Well, I realized that was kind of downbeat, so we're going to have an upbeat topic next time. I want to talk about crime and justice in America. <laughs> I want to talk about ethnic tension in America. So you go do some good for poverty, and we'll tackle this next time. Thanks, guys. <laughs>